are about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Evergatinos, and we are in the first volume, uh, very quickly coming to the end, surprisingly. Uh, it seemed to go very by very fast after a somewhat slow start, but uh, we are on page 387 this evening, picking up with uh, paragraph seven towards the bottom of the page. And the last few weeks, we've been discussing the virtue of humility, and we just started this hypothesis, 45, uh, on the distinctive marks of the humble man or humble woman. And uh, so there will be a lot of different things that we, we look at. Humility in terms of how we view our life as a whole, ourselves, the, the things that happen in our life. Uh, the slowness with which we judge others and uh, our caution in, in accepting our own judgment or even perception of things, even when they seem uh, to be clear. Uh, humility is key in our testing of religious or spiritual experiences too, that we don't uh, quickly take hold of, of something uh, even again, when it seems very vivid to us, but are willing to put it to the test. Uh, humility, as we will see, is also tied to forgiveness of the other. So there are a lot of different things that we're going to be uh, talking about throughout the course of this hypothesis. And as I mentioned last time, it's the longest in the first volume, the longest hypothesis, which tells us, again, something uh, interesting that uh, the fathers see it as something that is key to the spiritual life. Okay, number seven, page 387. On one occasion, when the same Abba Zacharias was staying in Skidas, he had a vision. He arose at once and reported it to his elder, Abba Karian. The latter, being a man of practical virtue, had no knowledge of these phenomena. He got up from where he was sitting and thrashed Zechariah, saying, perhaps this vision came from demons. But since Abba Zacharias continued to have the vision, he left his cell one night and went to Abba Poiman. After finding Abba Poiman, he recounted the vision to him and how he felt a burning sensation inside himself. The elder realized that this phenomenon came from God and said to Zacharias, Go to such and such an elder and take to heart whatever he tells you. Abba Zacharias went off to the elder, who before Zacharias even opened his mouth and told him anything, gave a detailed account of his situation and said to him in conclusion, the vision is from God, but go and submit to your spiritual father. So interesting, we not only see him uh, not quickly giving uh, into the belief uh, that this vision was real or that it was uh, from necessarily from God. And even being willing to take the, uh, the, the rebuke and as it were, the thrashing from his, his own elder uh, who lacked a kind of experience that he was uh, very practical, certainly in his approach of the monastic life and spirituality, but lacked this uh, ability to discern on this level. And uh, Zacharias takes it, and you know, but when it continues, 
he seeks out greater guidance from Poyman and then uh, allows Poyman to guide him to another who then is able to, to discern with greater clarity. Uh, and it's interesting, even though he tells him that it is from God, uh, that he uh, can see that within him clearly and undoubtedly partly because of his humility and his willingness to put it to the test simply sends him back and tells him to be obedient to his elder. And we find this a lot in the, the saints, both East and West, that uh, even when a vision is shown to be true or, or shown to be from God, that there isn't uh, a willingness or a quickness, I should say, to take hold of it as an end in itself. Uh, I think part of the wisdom of the saints is to take hold of the faith that the vision produces within the, the human soul, rather than taking hold of the experience itself and wanting to reproduce it, which is always the danger, that even if it is something that is from God, a person can become attached to the consolation itself. And so become, in a sense, distracted in the spiritual discipline of trying to reproduce it uh, and be looking for it to, to take place or disappointed when it doesn't. And, uh, and so the holy elder simply sends him back and tells him to submit to the, the guidance uh, of his elder to continue leading the life that he had embraced, because obviously it was bearing fruit for him. It had purified his heart and that God had given him this consolation of this particular vision. And so he should simply take hold of that and he can acknowledge that it is a gift from God, that it is a consolation, but again, allow that consolation to lead him into deeper faith. And I think this is a particularly important message in our own day. Uh, because not only do we hear it all the way back to the Gospels, people seeking out religious experiences, signs from God, and that being a particular danger. Uh, but I think in our generation, we have uh, so many things at our disposal, and we, we look very much for something that is going to move us on an emotional level, uh, either intellectually or emo emotionally, to convince us to believe. And uh, again, there can be a, a subtle deceit that the evil one can work with here. And so this great caution and humility uh, in the face of these things is important for us to understand, not only in putting them to the test, but not clinging to them. Okay. Any thoughts about this first little story? Okay. Again, for those who just joined us, we are on page 387 at the very bottom of the page. Abba Moses once asked the same Zacharias, tell me, Elder, what should I do? No sooner did Abba Zacharias hear this than he fell at the Abba's feet and said to him, are you asking me, Father? Abba Moses then said to him, believe me, Zacharias, my child, I saw the Holy Spirit descending on you and that is why I'm compelled to ask you. Zacharias then took his monastic hat from his head and placed it under his feet. And trampling on it, he said, unless a man is crushed in this way, he cannot be a monk. It's amazing that they could ever get advice out of each other at all. They seem to avoid it like, uh, avoid giving it like the, the plague, uh, very wary of being put in the position of being an elder. Uh, but uh, Zacharias is convinced to, to give some counsel, uh, but the counsel that, that he gives is rushed, or I'm sorry, is rough, uh, a broken, uh, contrite, or humbled heart uh, is what is pleasing to God, and uh, not to focus upon, again, building up the ego or the religious ego the sense of ourselves as being holy. And so in this kind of graphic fashion, he throws his, his hat on the ground, something that I would probably be very slow to do, uh, not wanting to get it dirty, uh, but uh, throws it on the ground and crushes it as, uh, again, a concrete example. 
that there might be no doubt in the Abba's mind about the, the path forward, that they go to the desert not to build themselves up, but rather to set aside everything that could become an impediment and enter into silence and solitude uh, in order to, you know, with this kind of profound introspection, to gaze into the depths of the heart and there to see these subtle movements that take place that sometimes arise out of our, our own hearts or that sometimes come to us by the evil one himself. And so setting aside this kind of surface view of the self or attention to the self on that level, rather than uh, gazing upon the things that are more important, the kinds of thoughts that come to us, the actions that we engage, the passions that are dominant within us. These are the things that we should be most attentive to. And you know, we'll see the word reproach come up a multitude of times with, within the, the hypothesis that if, if anything, that one is to acknowledge the multitude of sins that one has, even in the course of, of a day, the ways that we turn away from God, the ways that we are irritable or neglect uh, spiritual exercises, practices, and again, focus upon ourselves or our own comforts. And, uh, and so these are the things that we are to be wary of. Moving on. Uh, Abba Poyman related that when Abba Zacharias was about to die, Abba Moses asked him, what do you see, Abba? He replied, it is not better to be silent. Uh, is it not better to be silent, father? Yes, my child, responded Abba Moses, be silent. At the moment of his death, Abba Isidore, who was sitting nearby, raised his eyes to heaven and said, rejoice, Zacharias, my child because the gates of heaven have opened for you. So even in, at the moment of death, that what is held on to is the monastic discipline, uh, silence, that not to uh, uh, presume to make a judgment uh, about even what one sees or thinks at the last moment, to place oneself wholly within the hands of God and, and entrust ourselves to his judgment and to his compassion. And, you know, we are often quick to canonize, uh, most often ourselves, we hold ourselves in high esteem, but we can also be very quick to canonize uh, individuals and uh, the church is actually very slow about this typically uh, often it's hundreds of years if it happens at all uh, there are many holy individuals that I've been sort of surprised that have not been uh, canonized and uh, for one reason or another in the judgment and providence of God they were not and uh, we have to entrust that to him and so certainly with ourselves, the best course is silence before God. And what that father needed to hear, to be honest to you, at that moment would be heard in that silence, as we've so often talked about, that that's where God speaks to us in the depths of the heart. And so better than talking to others about what's going on and what's being perceived it's to be focused wholly upon God and entrusting oneself to him. Abba Avagrius said, the beginning of salvation is for a man to reproach himself. So the beginning of salvation is the turning toward God, the turning away from the self to acknowledge our need for forgiveness, for healing. Uh, and so repentance, as we saw at the very beginning of this volume, uh, is that first step towards healing, uh, to make a sh simple movement toward God uh, is enough to open up the floodgates of his mercy and his grace. And so it's good to hear that echoed once again as we come to the end of this first volume, 
and especially in relationship to the, the fundamental virtue of humility, that, uh, you know, again, it's not looking at ourselves simply in a negative way. It's uh, acknowledging our need and our poverty in a way that turns us toward God, to he is the source of, of mercy and healing. Any comments so far? Okay. Number 11. Abba Theodore was once relaxing with some other monks. While they, were, while they were eating, they took up their glasses in silence and did not say the familiar invocation, forgive me. Abba Theodore then said, monks have lost their manners by not saying, forgive me. Uh, so a little curiosity here, you know, in their practice, uh, you know, that we often ask people how, again, how they are doing or how's work going, how's your family, how are you feeling? Uh, and certainly there's nothing wrong with that, but one who has this mindset of seeking God and of humility in particular, that this, uh, the, the manners of a Christian would be to seek forgiveness for ways that we have slighted or hurt another, to, to humble ourselves before the other individual, to make that a habit of mind, that it is a habit of mind for us to offer those kind of greetings to people, to say hello, uh, these, uh, you know, kind of gentle ways that we interact with them, but to ask another for their forgiveness uh, is not often a habit we seek to cultivate. And so they, they sought to cultivate it with each and every interaction. And again, that might seem sort of peculiar to us that if we, we were to do that with, with each other, but I think we know when we, we live with each other, again, there are all these subtle slights, things that we neglect, even to say thank you, to show gratitude, ways that we are inattentive to the needs uh, of others uh, that, uh, that necessitate uh, this constant kind of forgiveness in order that that bond of charity be maintained. And the perfect example of this would be marriage that uh, in this intimate relationship, you know, that forgiveness is going to have to be a constant part of that interaction between the couple in order to renew that, that bond of charity and not to let things fester or become a source of resentment. Uh, one of the things, at least in the Latin rite, that they had us do in the pre-marriage uh, prep was something called focus. It was sort of an inventory of uh, couples' views on anything from se sexuality to finance to religion, uh, family, you know, your upbringing, discipline, children, everything. And it's not a test. It's just to give a sense to the priests about how deeply they've thought about some things. And if they haven't thought about them to help the couple uh, do so, or if there is a kind of divergence a great divergence in areas that you would try to work through that with, with a couple. But one of the questions is, uh, could you forgive your spouse if they were unfaithful? And you know, a couple coming forward to get married typically does not want to think about that idea, that, that possibility. Uh, it's, you know, so they sort of shrink back in horror from it. And most of them put, the question is, uh, I could forgive my future spouse if you know they were unfaithful. And most of them would put disagree. And again, it's not, you know, uh, a it's not even pass fail kind of thing. It just uh, I think what the church wants us to be examining with a couple are the the small ways that happen, sometimes even daily where there can be an infidelity to that commitment to each other, that you become one. And that carries with it a kind of responsibility 
to support and strengthen the other in the vocation as, as well as seeking to strengthen oneself in it. And there are many ways that we fail to give ourselves completely. And so to have forgiveness within one's heart and to be able to articulate that freely, uh, we all know how, how hard it is for some people to utter the words. They might say everything but, get as close to it as they can, but to actually ask for forgiveness can be a very difficult thing to do. Uh, especially if there's part of us that thinks we are in the right. And uh, I think what we learn from the fathers is that we might be in the right in a lot of different ways. And uh, uh, especially from our own point of view. But does that trump charity? And is our attempt to maintain that bond uh, more important than are proving ourselves right in an argument uh, that it devolves to the point of anger. And if it does, you know, can we humble ourselves enough to ask forgiveness? And um, so this is a more I've this is a more important counsel. I don't think we than than we might think. I don't want to pass over this if it's just a piety, a pious practice of old. Uh, any more than what we've heard mentioned in other texts, where I think it's Climacus who says, you know, it's better for us to ask someone, how's your prayer life, than again, how are you doing, when we greet them. Because again, that's that's the thing that's more indicative of where they, they are, what their true state is. Uh, if all is good with God, if they are entering into that relationship with with him, then that's the most important thing in that person's life uh, as well. And so similarly, to, to ask forgiveness uh, is uh, in the capacity to do that as a sign of spiritual health as well as humility. Any comments or thoughts? Number 12, a brother once told the same Abba Theodore, I want to fulfill the commandments. The elder replied to him, Abba Thomas once said, I want to fulfill my thoughts as God wills. So he immediately went to the oven and made bread. When he asked for some by certain, was asked for some by certain paupers, he gave them all the bread. When some other paupers asked him for alms, he gave them the baskets, baskets in which the, he kept the bread, as well as the garment that he was wearing. He went into his cell wearing only the uh, maphorian, which monks throw around their shoulders. But even after such almsgiving, he reproached himself, saying, I have not fulfilled the commandment of God as I should have done. So it's an interesting thing. We find similar stories, again, both East and West, where sometimes a superior would have to order uh, one of the members of their community to keep, keep uh, to stop uh, giving their clothes away. Uh, and uh, I think it is a member of St. Francis's community that kept doing that uh, with, with the poor, you know, coming ho home half naked because he had stripped himself of his garments. And... Uh, and similarly, we hear, you know, this particular monk, uh, you know, wanting to fulfill the, the will of God fully and, uh, and to fulfill, as he says, my thoughts as God wills. And so he begins to try to, to live out the commands, go sell all that you possess, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. But to take that from, again, being simply notional, and to make it as real and concrete as possible and to act upon it truly and not to hold on to anything as a kind of private possession or again as something having greater value in the eyes of God than the person uh, standing before us. And um, I think even, again, if we were to think of our day-to-day -day life, just as we talked about here with forgiveness, that our generosity of spirit towards others when they ask things from us, 
uh, it might not be as with this monk uh, with bread or, or alms or clothing, but it can be time, attention, a listening ear, uh, help with you know something uh, that is needed at an inconvenient time. Uh, or when we have a multitude of labors already on our, our shoulders. Uh, I think this is where perhaps we could take up the wisdom of the fathers and begin to ask ourselves, am I trying to embody, uh, to incarnate the, incarnate the, the gospel uh, fully? Or again, is it something more in our mind, my mind, or do I try to, to, to live it in such a way that it's least uh, intrusive to do it from afar. Uh, Sharon Fisher writes, but doesn't opening with how's your prayer life seem like a prejudgment that they aren't attentive enough? How are you doing can be sincere, but also allow individuals to share at their own com comfort level. Not trying to be contrary, but I maintain my own faith and I'm wary of coming across as holier than thou. Uh, sorry, late comment to last segment. Uh, absolutely. You know, I think there was this sense among the monks that they were living in a community and known to each other and where they might show greater restraint, certainly among uh, someone that they had no knowledge of whatsoever. But uh, I think this intimacy with others that comes through living in community uh, allows us to uh, you know, be familiar uh, in the way that we, we talk on a different level and to ask things that we might not typically ask others. You know, how, how is your relationship with God? Uh, you know, parents, this is a, a, an important thing too, that there isn't often a hesitancy to ask children, how are things going in your life or in your friendships? How's your love life? is often asked and nobody seems to be embarrassed about asking others about that uh, but how's your love life in regards to your relationship with God that we seem hesitant or embarrassed to ask people about but certainly to ask your children about what, what they're thinking in regards to even their belief in God or what they're encountering in their world and to go deeper than you know how school going or how was practice today uh, but to have talk of God and the things of God and of the human heart be something that is uh, at the forefront of that relationship. Uh, who better? Who can take those opportune moments in a better way than than a parent or a close friend? Uh, and certainly, it's not only for one spiritual director. But your point's well taken. You know, I, I think we aren't indiscriminate in, in the way that we do this in the sense that we would give a person a feeling of being judged or make the situation so awkward for them. We don't might not even know if they believe in God. So it seems sort of foolhardy to be asking them about their prayer life until we know better. Okay. All right, number 13. A brother said to Abba Theodore, give me a word of consolation for I am perishing. And then with sorrow, Abba Theodore replied, I'm in danger of perishing. And thus, what can I tell you? You know, there is at times, I think, especially when we are put in the position of, of doing it, of taking uh, the opportunity to offer guidance or counsel when we can't. And the, where the honest answer might be simply, I'm, I'm struggling myself, uh, or I am, I'm perishing, not to pretend to be the holy one, and for those who are religious or might seem more religious among their friends, uh, we can be the, the, the focus of a lot of different questions about the faith life. And I think people, to be honest with you, appreciate honesty uh, or the answer, I don't know, 
more than they do uh, a stilted response that is uh, simply trying to say something, anything. And so at times speaking the truth, uh, especially when it's a humbling one, I have nothing to offer you because at this moment, I'm struggling in such a way that I feel like I'm perishing. Uh, I suppose if I said that to people coming to spiritual direction, they might never come back to me again. But uh, I don't know, to be honest with you, it's not, you don't want to make spiritual direction about yourself, of course. Uh, but priests and monks, you know, go through periods of darkness as well. And, uh, you know, and so I think, you know, sometimes it's more honest to be able to say that the religious life sometimes requires a kind of raw endurance. And I think that, to be honest with you, resonates with people more often than not, that there are things in life that no uh, spiritual counsel, uh, you know, no eloquent words uh, is going to be able to address that a listening ear or a person who's, you know, able to be compassionate or to sympathize, to suffer with an individual, yes. And even to be able to understand that that pain uh, or, you know, the, the struggles or contradictions that they experience in life or the necessity for that raw endurance, that there are some things that we only come to understand when we come out the other end, we, when we come out the other side of it. And part of the faith life can be enduring in hope, holding on, hoping against hope, holding on to the promises of Christ when all is darkness and faith even seems as though it's failing us at certain moments. And uh, and so I think upon first reading this, it might seem rather stark and we might think, well, what kind of answer is that? And that's not very helpful, but I think in the end, sometimes it could be the most helpful thing that is said. Anybody have any thoughts about that? There is a book uh, by a Carthusian, they never sign their works, uh, but I believe it's called The Wound of Love, uh, Carthusian Miscellany is the subtitle, and it's extraordinary. I, over the course of the years, I must have read it, you know, 10 times, and certain parts of it more, and uh, so if you're able to get a hold of a copy or use copy. Again, it's really worth having. There's a depth and richness to their writing that is very much like the Desert Fathers, uh, precisely because they are so deeply immersed in the life of solitude. They know the subtle workings of the human heart and the kinds of thoughts and feelings that we go through uh, when even faith seems to fail us. And so again, it's called The Wound of Love, Carthusian miscellany. Okay. Number 14. The esteemed Archbishop Theophilus once went to the mountain of Nitria. He was visited by the spiritual father of the ascetics of that mountain. The Archbishop asked him, Father, what further have you discovered on this path of asceticism? An elder answered, always to consider yourself blameworthy for everything and to reproach ourselves. Truly, the Archbishop agreed, there is no other way than this. I don't know if we would be as quick to say, truly, there's no other way than this, but uh, the, to see oneself as blameworthy for everything. Uh, what these kind of statements communicate to me at least, and I only speak for myself in this regard, it is a kind of solidarity that exists in sin between us. There is this bond of love in Christ, a solidarity in that fashion as well, the, as being part of the body of Christ. 
but there is this radical solidarity that exists with that exists between us in sin and if not in committing it god willing uh then in helping to expunge it or to ease the burden of it uh but to acknowledge that you know there are things that are unseen uh, about ourselves and you remember how uh i mentioned one of the elders saying that you know that what we see of the saints is the least part of them that god what god is doing underneath the surface is far more radical and powerful in terms of this transformation that takes part by his grace you know what we see in their the, their holiness of life or their words or the depth of their prayer is a reflection of that holiness but that's what it is a reflection of what god is doing within them and what it is to be filled with the spirit of god and uh but this is also true i think in our struggle for purification of heart and our struggle with sin and our attachment to sin and the things of this world that we we don't see everything and we have to allow that in humility to be illuminated by god over the course of time to be shown uh our sin in order that we might know healing might repent and this is how often we are humbled and made humble is by god allowing us to see uh these things come forward where we wonder gee wh where did that come from or why did i respond in that way that way to this particular person or you know where we have a flare-up of anger or resentment or find ourselves holding on to something that we had we had put far behind us and uh so to see ourselves is always blameworthy and to reproach ourselves again isn't this kind of self-hatred it's that first step that's already been talked about here in the hypothesis of turning toward god of repentance of the acknowledgement of our need for forgiveness not only of the things that we see but of the multitude of things that we do not see And again you know that often strikes against this self-image that we we like to main, maintain we like to hold on to some shred of dignity that we've created for ourselves number 15. when the same archbishop went to skidas the brothers gathered together and said to abba pambo say a word to the pope or the patriarch that he might be edified the elder replied if he does not profit from my silence neither will he profit from my speech and so again we we are told that silence is greater than than speech and in, in the sense of what it can reveal to us about our, ourselves about the truth about god and uh we can be spiritually curious on an intellectual level and the monks struggled with this as we've talked about often where people would come out to them because of hearing uh, hearing about their reputation for holiness or giving good counsel and so sometimes people would come out of curiosity or to put that to the test and uh and so as a kind of lesson here uh Abba Pambo says you know if he's not edified by the depth of the silence then there's certainly nothing in what I say to him uh that is going to speak more powerfully than that and uh because it was precisely their the self-imposed silence and solitude of going into the desert that gave them so much that stripped them from not only their attachment to the things in, of the world but again uh their their judgment of certain realities and others all that they could see was god in themselves what was within their own hearts their thoughts 
the ideas, the emotions that came to them. Uh, they, in this sense, they were the, the first depth psychologist. You know, there was nothing in the desert onto which to project their uh, their sins, their anger, their resentment, their wounds. You know, what are you going to do in your cell when you become angry or when you trip over a piece of wood or a stone and you become infuriated? You know, who are you going to blame it on uh, at that point? You know, you're you're compelled to look at the movement of the heart and to refine that attentiveness uh, on such a level uh, that you know, very little begins to escape a person. And, uh, and so this is why I think the spirituality of the fathers has endured so profoundly, not you know, just as an example from the past, but something that helps us, that has a therapeutic effect in our own day, in the, in the sense of bringing healing to soul, being true psychotherapy, that they aren't calling us to go to the desert of Egypt. They're calling us to go into the desert of the heart and of silence and of solitude there to encounter God, but there also to see the, the subtle movements of our own hearts, our, of our, our selfishness, our lack of charity, where there's a need for conversion and healing. Any thoughts or comments? You're all giving profound example by your silence here tonight. Thank you so much. Forgive me for my talkativeness. <laughs> okay. Number 16. Ama Theodora used to say that neither asceticism nor hardship nor any kind of toil saves except for, for genuine humility. She told this story. There was an anchorite who was going to exercise some demons. First, he asked them, by what power are you driven from a man? By fasting? We neither eat or drink, they replied. By vigil? And they said, we do not sleep at all. By withdrawal from the world? No, they answered, we inhabit the deserts. When the elder persisted in asking in what way they were driven out, they confessed, nothing defeats us except humility. So again, no uh, emphasis upon the ascetical practices as ends in themselves. If they do not foster humility, a spirit of repentance, relying upon the grace of God, then they've fallen short of, of, their, of their purpose, uh, most certainly. And uh, we'll see as we go through this text, Again, that the uh, the mere act of humility in certain circumstances, we heard this last week, has the, the power of casting out demons without a word being spoken. You remember the story that we read last week where they bring a young woman who's possessed by a demon into the presence of a monk and she runs over and she slaps him across the face and he turns the other cheek and immediately the demon is cast out because he acts not only in this humble way, but he embodies the truth of the gospel, that he becomes a true confessor of, of the faith, but more than that, he becomes uh, Christ present to this, to this young woman. And this is how the demon is cast out. And it, again, it shows us a lot that we, can, we ourselves can be, become an impediment we can get in the way of our own experience of the love and the mercy of God, as well as other people's experience of that reality too. When we, again, are fighting to put ourselves uh, into the center rather than Christ, or when we are holding on uh, to something like uh, a position of emotional power within a relationship, 
you know, to uh, be putting ourselves forward in such a, a way uh, that we have the upper hand in a subtle, subtle fashion. There can be a kind of sick desire that we have, not, not to be too blunt about it, but we, we can enjoy uh, being in relationships where something in us is being fed by them. And uh, when all of a sudden that shifts and changes and is no longer present, it can be something that causes great, great anger within us. This is often shows itself in the relationship between mentor and mentee. You know, the mentor is there guiding the individual, you know, while he or she is young. And when they grow and develop and, become, you know, reach a level where they're more as like a peer, or when they begin to take paths that are unique to their own lives or spirituality, the, in, in the sense of being faithful to where God is calling them. Uh, sometimes the person who's in that role of mentor doesn't want to give up that position within the relationship. You know, wants to be seen as, in that role because it gives them a kind of satisfaction. And it might not even be something that they're conscious of. But it can be actually destroy, I've seen it destroy relationships or at least undo them for many years uh, because there wasn't this willingness to uh, allow the individual to be exactly that. Uh, you know, someone who's distinct from me. So, okay. Number 17, Abba John the Short said, humility and fear of God are above all the other virtues. So here it said for us directly that humility stands above all the others and in it is contained all the other virtues that you might see uh, things that are, are appearances of sanctity and others. But if there is humility lacking there, then none of those virtues are going to produce the fruit that God would desire from them. But even if a person has only humility and is lacking in the other virtues in so many different ways, he has everything. It's a, there's a kind of, there's, there's something maybe that's a little bit shocking about that for us. It's sort of like the, uh, publican in the t in the temple, you know, beating his breast. There's no virtue that he has, and he acknowledges it, and and beats his breast, and he goes home, uh, you know, in a right relationship with God. He stands in the eyes of God in this positive light because he's humble. Uh, whereas you know the the Pharisee, you know, gives this whole list of virtues. And yet he lacks the, the most important of them and undoes all the, all the good that he engages in on a day-to-day -day basis. Because again, you know, he attributes it to himself and he uses it as a way of comparing himself to the other and exalting his own self-image. So, you know, I know sometimes it's very difficult, especially in our day and age where there is so much uh, contention and so much uh, arguing that seems to take, uh, uh, take place in and around the, the faith. And things seem so important. The truth needs to be defended. The church needs to be defended. And so it can be hard to slow things down and to ask ourselves, is that really true? And what is the mo more powerful thing or the more powerful way God acts within our lives and in our hearts and within the church as a whole? Uh, I've mentioned a number of times I've pinned to the top of my uh, pages in, in social media that, that quote from the Jesuit that wherever there's renewal, within the life of the church, there's present typically the, the Desert Fathers. This movement back to 
really what takes us back to the very heart of the gospel in this radical concrete way to to want to live it without uh you know any kind of um i don't know watering down and uh again you know if humility can cast out a demon what should we do in the face where we see obvious evil or sin within the church or uh you know some failure and some way to teach the fullness of of the truth you know should we be filled with agitation and anger or should our first response be personal repentance again if we see a kind of radical solidarity that exists between us how is it that we are called to strengthen the body of of the church and you know the answer to us is no different from what we are reading here the answer is to humble ourselves to repent to turn to god in a far more radical way withhold nothing from him this is how we we strengthen the church and again it sort of takes us back to their emphasis again on silence we can move very quickly to talk to rebuke rather than to repent because it's an easy thing for us to do to point out another person's failure rather than to take hold of our own ownership in that if there is this radical solidarity that exists between us that it's as i'm as responsible for this as anybody else and so i take hold of it as my burden as well out of my love for the church my love for christ should compel me to repentance and hu humility for love of the church whenever i see these things rather than to direct that to project it outwards onto others even when we see uh what seems clearly to be sinful to us now don't take me wrong i think you know whenever there is something that is you know where someone's being victimized or something along those lines where there's injustice you know there are times of course where we are to intervene but i, I think in this spiritual battle day-to-day moment-to-moment -moment, this is where the warfare is fought any comments this is sharon um uh so to bring it to maybe a reality level um so i went to a an aa meeting with a parishioner mm -hmm. and you know truth be told i should probably be going every day or every week she it was well known that she was going to aa meetings and not so well known that i went and and it became well known which felt like an invasion it felt like you know my efforts toward repentance and correction kind of backfired in a way um and you know it's not that i'm uh, that upset about it but it just seems in the church in, in the body of the church that there would be more grace um less of the gossip yeah. and it's hard it is hard and i think you know when we're betrayed in such a way because it's a betrayal of trust that you know the natural response to that would be anger and to feel that anger and to feel betrayed by the individual who takes something intimate from one's own life and that even though you share in common and then exposes it to everyone within the life of the church right. and, and uh you know certainly there's not something just inappropriate about that but wounding it, uh, yeah. i think it's what we do with that is what's important that there is something humbling in these experiences and oftentimes even humiliating mm -hmm. uh, to have things about one's life ex you know exposed to the view of, of of the world and uh and i think this is where you know our faith and our trust in the providence of god is is really meant to shape this that you know what what might god do with that 
you know, and in terms of our own hearts. And maybe even in, in the heart of the individual who committed, you know, this act in the sense of the betrayal of the trust, you know, in terms of their coming to see that with a greater clarity. But what is our embrace of that cross? Again, do for the, the world, for others, you know, our participation in the sufferings of Christ. Because that's what's happening. We know Christ was betrayed. Yeah. And, you know, it's the betrayal of the world as a whole, but betrayed by those who are closest to us. And so in a very concrete fashion, you are participating in that. And at the same time, being pressed to Christ in that experience in the most intimate fashion. It's sort of our seeing ourselves as uh, pinned to the cross with him, uh, participating in that suffering. And, you know, when we look to the writings of the saints, they talk often about this, this redemptive suffering, that we, we participate in the sufferings of Christ in this radical way by, by grace, by virtue of our union and communion with him, and our saying amen when we receive his body and blood in the Holy Eucharist, because we are participating and saying yes, not only to our reception of the life and the, the grace that comes through that gift, but we're saying yes to entering into that Paschal mystery ourselves, that we are willing to enter into that same kind of love that is often betrayed by the world. Uh, but aren't we, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Yes. Um, but aren't we, in, when we're in communion with Christ and we, and we take his body and blood, we're in communion with Christ and the body of the church. And so if you feel betrayed and if you haven't laid down your, you know, gone and, you know, had, had your peace, spoken your peace, like there can't be that resentment there and it's there. Well, I think, you know, certainly in circumstances like this, you know, and this would, you know, there is fraternal correction, you know, at an opportune moment where you could pull the person aside and say, you know, part of AA is the respect of the individual. You know, the, there is this kind of solidarity that exists between us in our struggle and that we keep what is said in these groups in the group. You know, it's not for public consumption, not because we're ashamed of it, but right. because we want people to have the freedom to lay out on the table uh, without everything, without varnishing it in, mm -hmm. in any kind of way uh, to make it look more pretty. And, you know, what I've always respected about people who are in AA is they, they know BS when they hear it, and they're typically willing to call people on the table for it. You know, they become very perceptive of when a person's, you know, not really uh, presenting things fully when mm -hmm. they're all in the picture. And it's so powerful because it draws people in over the course of time to let down those defenses that we have in place and to look at ourselves and the things that we've done and in this case, in our drinking, uh, what we've done that have been destructive to ourselves and others. And so, you know, it may have been impulsive on this individual's part. And so a kind of fraternal correction, I think there not only would be justified, but I would think even important, especially if she's a regular participant in a group like this that you know, it's family connection you know married to the married to the subdeacon and the brother of the you know so it's kind of you know it all gets complicated but thank you i appreciate that sure. and i appreciate um folks in the chat as well yeah it is it is complicated and i i think to take one's time with it mm. and to pray, to pray about it and to try to act out of the grace of god rather than the the resentment and that well, might I... that might take some time I actually right now I'm kind of looking at it as a reinforcement of what I need to do differently and better, um, you know, a revealing of, right. but I mean, that's how I want to think of it, yeah. <laughs> but you know, I'm getting that. there, I'm getting there. Okay. All right. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. Okay. Uh, Father Marty. 
sometimes I'm quick to jump into problem solving or project, project management in my life or ministry or others' lives. I'm wondering if the practice of humility would recommend that I stop and ask first, is this where God is working? It seems that I've been noticing God at work in subtle ways in my or others' lives, but not necessarily in what I think is more important or expedient. I'm wondering about humility here. Absolutely. You know, I think we aren't problem solvers. And we're not, you know, those who are to be fix-it men or fix-it women. You know, that we st step into the other's life and try uh, to to heal them. And often it's hard, especially for priests, uh, not to, to lose that kind of humble spirit and to step into that role. You know, uh, tell me, Father, what to do. You know, what am, how am I supposed to get out of this? When we might not know anything about that person at all, the circumstances surrounding it, you know, I think as a younger priest, I find myself and still do, you know, at times, but, but it, it slows you down when you find yourself walking in the dark or when you respond to that and realize that the spiritual counsel that you offer might be the exact opposite of what the person needs when what you really need to be doing is He's listening. That's supposed to be making the right turn and the other guy. Hold on. For a second somebody was chatting there but listening uh first maybe for a long period of time uh in order to understand what's going on in a person's life and uh that's a hard thing to suspend judgment and not to place oneself in a role that god might be revealing a multitude of things to the priest, to that individual in and through a particular struggle. And again, we, we don't want to become an impediment to the action of God, but to be, uh, you know, an, an aid to, to healing. And, uh, you know, not to draw psychology back into this again, but I think one, one of the things that I came to respect in the study of it was that willingness to suspend judgment and to wait and to listen for a long period of time to recognize you know that that which is conscious and this includes the spiritual life too that what is conscious is often the tip of the iceberg and under the water it spreads out into this huge you know massive structure of ice and you know, in the spiritual life, as well as the emotional life, there's a lot, awful lot there that isn't seen. And if you don't have the patience and the focus on the other, that allows you to be willing to to listen and for, maybe for a long time without making a quick judgment, we can, you can end up doing more harm than good. And I think people have often received a lot more harm, both from psychologists and from those who are spiritual directors uh by uh, again you know stepping into this role uh in, in an inappropriate way and you know i think what, what the fathers emphasize is purity of heart that allows for discernment to develop that you cannot begin to see and understand these things these struggles and others unless you've dealt with them in yourself and with your own heart and psychology you know as secular as it has become still in part acknowledges that by having those who study analysis anyways undergo psychoanalysis unless you've undergone this process itself and allowed yourself to see the subtlety of that internal narrative how are you going to do that with another person until you've humbly looked at the things that emerge from your own unconscious and you know the desert fathers were the first to do this and the best i think again you know i mentioned they have this enduring therapeutic healing quality because they don't they have this fuller vision of the human person that includes the spiritual life and the relationship with god and sin but they had their those who were in their charge doing some of the same things revealing of one's thoughts without holding anything back and on a daily basis 
and you know entering into this silence you know the same thing happens in psychoanalysis a person laying on the couch they see the ceiling they they enter engage in this sort of uh, free association not uh they don't uh edit things out you know the desert fathers were doing this centuries before you know the development of developments of modern psychology and in some ways in a far more astute fashion and i think we see that in these writings humility again truthful living living in the full light of the truth and it's not easy but you see what 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 comes from that the the depth of the healing Well, won't we stop there for the evening and we'll pick up next week or on Wednesday if you're coming to Climacus. And uh, we'll close as always with our Father, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.